This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Antonia Nelson, author of seven short story collections and four novels. Several of her novels and short story collections have been New York Times book review notable books. Nelson's fiction has also appeared in The New Yorker. In addition to writing, she teaches at the University of Houston and the Warren Wilson MFA program. Her latest work is a collection of short stories called Funny Once, which features 10 stories, primarily focusing on human relationships. We began our discussion talking about when she knew she wanted to be a writer. I was a big reader. I guess that's the main thing, that I read books and sort of encountered the world a lot through characters in books and, you know, spent a lot of time by myself and uh, lost in in fictional worlds. Um, and I think that temperament or that, that personality trait is um, the, the main thing for me that made writing the way I wanted to respond to the world because I encountered it in reading and in, you know, between the covers of books so frequently that I wanted to respond in kind. My my parents were both English professors, and our house was full of books, uh, and so they were always available to me, both the books and my parents, to talk about the books. And, you know, it's just the way I'm built, I think. Do you have a lot of siblings? There are five of us in, in my family, so yeah. So were you one of the more introverted of the group since you read a lot, or you weren't introverted? I don't think I was... Well, I guess I sort of was. I, I, it's, you know, I've thought about it quite a lot as time has gone by. My, my family really prizes the ability to tell a story, you know, but the kind of story you'd hear over the dinner table or um, at a bar, you know, just an interesting tale somebody could fashion. And I wasn't very good at that. Um, and so I think some of my reaction to hearing their stories was to adore them and then to want to participate in some way. But on the page it was a little more more my style. I don't I don't know that I was really introverted. I guess I was a little I was a little um, independent and operated in solitude a lot. I don't know that I would call myself introverted, however, um, as I understand it. I wasn't shy exactly. I was just unable to um, be in a group and sort of lost in in an activity. I was quite frequently on the outside, looking at it, evaluating it, describing it, and guessing at at the motives of the people performing whatever they were performing. I think my interest had that kind of, I don't know, I suppose narrator's quality. You said once that one of the things you've noticed about a lot of, of writers is that they maybe had an isolating incident as kids. Either they were sick or maybe they were different somehow or had some time when they were separated from society and became an observer? Yeah, I've, I've felt that often that, you know, some physical disability. I mean, I think like John Updike and um, Flannery O'Connor and Robert Louis Stevenson, all, all these people who spent time isolated from activity by, by illness, by a kind of literal separation and in that separation, spending a great deal of time with books as their companions, and then their response to that being 
twofold. One, that they would identify and have great knowledge of books, and two, their observations of others would be informed by having been alone and reading and being activated by, you know, the the very the very plain surface of a of a book or a page, you know, to to be living vicariously, I guess. Which is not to say that every person who spends his or her in bed reading books will become a writer. I I've read recently some essay in which the author sort of posited that writing doesn't make you lonely, but loneliness might lead to writing, which I think maybe is is an interesting way to think about it. It comes out in your writing so much that you're such a keen observer of human behavior and how people operate, you know, from your childhood to being sort of an observer to becoming a writer. How do you think you blended that with the craft? I mean, is that something you learned to hone in graduate school or is it something that you're still learning? How did you mate those two things? Well, I think just being aware both of the solicitous phrase on the page or, you know, when you overhear it at the grocery store, when somebody says something in such a way that it makes language fresh and interesting and funny, I would say that my interest in people has a lot to do with finding them amusing, you know, that I like, I like to be made to laugh and that's often, you know, a a turn of phrase is often what makes me laugh, a pun or some accidental, you know, misunderstanding of, of a familiar phrase. I was in the airport in Nashville not that long ago and, um, the plane was delayed and these little children running around, um, were pretending to be what they called pirates pirates who would decide how to fly the plane and where it was going. And I loved that, that, you know, they they decided that it wasn't a pilot driving our plane, but a pirate. And that kind of thing is interesting to me. And it's, I guess, the same with human behavior. I like to hear stories. I like to try to figure out the story behind the story. You know, the story you read in the newspaper is never the whole story. And, you know, figuring out what's under the tip of that iceberg is, is is very compelling to me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Antonia Nelson. So how much of your stories, and we can focus on um, Funny Once, but come from real life? I've read an article you wrote about how to teach um, maybe beginning writer students starting a story from their real life and how you alter it. But how about your yeah. experience? I think of my fiction, in a way, the way I think of my dream, where the elements are recognizable, but everything has been manipulated by the unconscious in the instance of dreams and maybe by the conscious in the instance of stories. But still, it it seems like a good an analogy to make because some of this stuff has happened. I don't know how I'd be interested in it if it weren't something personal to me, but its alteration is what gives me the ability to see something larger than than my own experience within the story. 
why it, why it has some sort of resonance and power can't be dependent on the sheer specifics of it's having happened to me. It has to be able to transcend some of that. And the manipulation is, is really necessary. And I guess in the same way that it dreams by manipulating one's experience, you know, you show up at your grandmother's house from 50 years ago and they're sitting at her table, you know, is somebody you met yesterday. So that's all autobiographical except it's out of sequence and differently placed. And then you've got moving parts that you can work with and, um, you know, turn into something artful yet still meaningful to you for it being personally relevant. I don't know if that seems too abstract as a way of talking about making fiction, but that's genuinely the way I think about it and I think the way that it, it, it comes to me. On the same note, I'm very uncomfortable using the first person pronoun in writing fiction. Um, I, I've, since I was a child, imagining writing fiction have always put some remove between myself and, and my characters, so... The typical story I've written is overseen by a third-person protagonist so that I don't have to conflate that that pronoun I walk around all day referring to myself as with, with the person in the story. So the stories in Funny Once, I noticed a few things throughout. In a few of them, you had characters who were trying to stop drinking. And Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering, that holds some other power for you, that idea of stopping an addiction, or if that's just coincidence? Yeah, I think the story is, I mean, not only is the concern, you know, alcohol has played a role in most of my fiction from the beginning. And like most things, you know, over time, the serious consequences of something that starts as a lark or a whim start to, to take up residence. There's also a lot of suicide that's in the book. It sounds like a very uplifting book when we talk about it this way, I know. But, um, you know, there's characters reaching the mid-life crises and trying to figure out if it's worth going on, um, drinking either to forget about that or to sort of put a an ease into an anxiety-ridden life. And I think those are consistent themes in the book. Um, and, you know, they're consistent themes in my life, I guess, that one wanders around feeling like, I don't know, what 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 now after the children are grown and um, the job is deja vu rather than deja new. It's, uh, it's an interesting, difficult, you know, anxious time. Does writing somehow make it better? I'm happiest when I'm in possession of a story idea that I think is going to go somewhere, and I don't have much control over that, however, so it does make it better when I'm possessed by an idea, and then it sort of makes it worse when I'm waiting for one to come at me like a lightning bolt, and I've found that I really have to be patient with the process that something has to spark an interest in me that I can respond to with curiosity and enthusiasm and hope that I'm not repeating myself. Really the danger these days, a fear of redundancy that I've already written about that character or this character or that situation. I think it's a story writer's challenge, really. You know, a novel can take up a long story and um, the writer can be invested in it for a long time. The short story occupies 
a smaller span and you're more likely, I think, if you're rushing or, you know, not being patient with waiting for something truly different to show up, you're you're at risk of, um, you know, writing the same thing and boring yourself, not to mention your readers. Well, do you think that the age of your characters help you change that? You were just mentioning that a lot of these are are middle-aged characters. Does focusing on the age of a character help? Oh, yeah. I mean, it helps enormously. And, um, you know, I still still feel an affinity for small children and teenagers. You know, it's been kind of interesting to be able to occupy the point of view, truly, of middle age and to figure out how it's really not very different from any other age. You keep thinking you're going to arrive at adulthood and wisdom and contentment. And, you know, actually, I don't think that particularly happens. I think we all end up being in seventh grade for a long while. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Antonia Nelson. Do you find that teaching makes you a better writer even after all these years? It does. I know it does, because um, for starters, I, I have to read the literature I'm teaching again and again and again and again, and um, rereading great works makes you realize how carefully they're put together, how bulletproof they are. I'm always finding new things to admire um, about those stories, and I wouldn't reread them as frequently as I do if I, if I weren't charged with um, you know, preaching to my students their importance. And I think something about the rhythms and, um, well, I just know that the literature I love and continue to um, to teach is, is helpful for me in establishing excellent syntax. I mean, I'm not claiming that I have that, but just to be exposed to it endlessly is, is helpful. And also to be um, charged with reading students' work and, and trying to help them fashion a more perfect piece to point at the ways in which the art hasn't quite fully um, manifested. So I, I like to talk revision with my students, and that makes me more mindful of my own practices uh, revising. One of the stories in your collection, Funny Once, that I think about a lot is called The Village. Uh-huh. And that is a story about a young girl who messes up when she's a teenager. She totaled the car and her dad let her in on a secret because she was feeling so low and had to be picked up at the police department. And it was a secret that he was having an affair. And he basically hooks her up with this woman that he's having an affair with who kind of saves her. She ends up doing volunteer work with this woman, Lois, she sort of saves her, and then when she dies, she is really touched by this and goes to visit her kids at the death, and the kids don't really seem to have this loving impression of her as Darcy does. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the genesis of this story and your writing process and what the story means to you. The character Darcy is sort of the family black sheep, of her family of origin, and she's got, I think, five siblings, so there's a lot of them to be compared to. And um, her mother, I think, is this kind of controlling, imperious, you know, no-nonsense type person, and the woman with whom her father is having an affair back when 
is more um, spontaneous and feminine and frivolous in some way. And I don't know why I was interested in that, really, um, except that there's some there's something in me that likes to respond to to the status quo, to conventional wisdom, and attempt to kind of upend it to say, yeah, maybe it's not always a terrible thing that you know that people have affairs. Maybe in fact, having an affair saves the marriage, or maybe you know, drinking to excess in some instances is a good thing. I like to challenge what could be considered just you know. In other instances, people might have a kind of knee-jerk, oh, that's a terrible reaction. And I think part of what makes fiction interesting to me is to challenge that. So, you know, here's a person, I guess, in the, in the character of Lois, the woman who's, um, you know, sort of like decoration um, or not practical and not... She's more whimsical in some way. And, and I think the character of Darcy needs to have that because she's failing at being a sort of um, good daughter to her mother. So she needs a figure she can have some connection to. Um, I don't know where it came from exactly. I was in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, and um, something about that place made me write that story. There was a guy there who I wasn't that fond of who becomes one of those loathsome twins, the son of the the woman Lois, but I don't know other than that what to tell you about it. How much does place influence your story? Because I, I would say most of your writing is is really psychological about the characters, but there's also places, obviously places you go back to a lot, Kansas where you grew up, some are in Telluride where you also have a house. In this book, there's more about Houston. How much does place influence a story? Well, oftentimes a story will be informed by a place. For example, the story, Chapter 2, which is about um, a woman showing up on her neighbor's doorstep naked. That actually happened to me in New Mexico, and I relocated it to Houston just to take out some of the autobiographical stuff of the story. I guess I have two things to say. I either need to be a visitor to a place, which I've, you know, written about too, writing as an outsider, when you're capable of seeing things in the place that people who've lived there forever no longer actually see. And then there's the role of the insider who knows the place so well as to write about it with a kind of fluency and authority that can only be from, from knowing it well. So I have relationships to place that are both of those things, and then, unfortunately, the relationship that is neither of those things. You know, Houston is now a place that I'm not deeply familiar with. I didn't grow up here, but I've been here 12 years now, so it is no longer a place that that's weirdness shows itself to me so so frequently as it once did. So when I visit places like Florida or, you know, San Francisco, where I don't have familiarity, the oddness really stands out and, and sort of asks me to write about it because I'm encountering it for the first time. And then those other places with which I'm deeply familiar give me permission to just imagine myself in them and proceed with the details that are, I think, convincing and authentic because they are. They just are. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Antonia Nelson. In in some of your stories, your characters lie, like in Funny Once, which is the story of this couple who aren't married, but they've been together for a long time. And the female, Phoebe, she's kind of a pessimist. She doesn't look at anything very positively. And she and her partner were getting stoned and really drunk and he burned her hair so she has to wear a scarf and they go to dinner to their friend's houses a lesbian couple who are both named Louise and she ends up lying to one of them who about her hair she's wearing a scarf and says she has cancer I find this lie intriguing can you tell me a little bit about where that came from for you and and that story well, a lot of my characters are liars, and I think you know that that I'm that come by quite honestly, if I could say that. Uh, I was a tremendous liar as a child, and I think it you know it's a trait that will serve a fiction writer well. I mean, I guess I you know channeled that seemingly bad behavior into something a little better, maybe. But anyway, you know, the other side of the coin, like speculating why a character, why a person would do this, that, or the other, is also just sort of throwing out the options, and what I had in mind for that story originally was just, I don't know where this image came from, but in my mind, a woman is staring into the kitchen, to the kitchen window and sees a reflection, and that reflection is of her head on fire, her hair on fire, and that, of course, led me to, well, why would a person have her hair on fire? You know, what would what would have led to that thing happening? And then what would be the repercussions after the fact? And just operating with that was where I um, started the story. And even within the story, the character um, is forever doubting people's good behavior, good instincts, and questioning their motivations. And so she's not just a liar herself or an inventor of stories. She's also also somebody who doesn't fully trust other people to be telling the truth or to be who they say they are. So it's sort of part and parcel of the story, I guess. Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I, I picked uh, Mavis Gallant's story, of Kenyon's Junction. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, it's a description of a character, and I'll just read a few paragraphs. She was a bony, slow-moving girl from a small, bombed, baroque German city where all that was worthwhile keeping had been rebuilt and which now looked as pink and golden as a pretty child and as new as morning. By the standards of a few years ago, she would have been thought plain. She was so tall that she bumped her head getting in and out of airplanes, and in her childhood, she had often been told that her feet were like canal boats. Her light hair would have been brown, about the color of brown sugar, if she had not rinsed it in chamomile and, whenever possible, dried it in sunlight. She could not use a commercial bleach because of some vague promise she had given her late grandmother when she was 14. She had a striking density of expression in photographs, though she seemed unchanging and passive in life, and had caught sight of her own face looking totally empty-minded when, in fact, her thoughts and feelings were pushing her in some wild direction. She had heard a man say of her that you could leave her in a cafe for two hours and come back to find she was still smoking the same cigarette. She had done some modeling, not well paid, in middling ready-to-wear centers such as Berlin and Zurich, but now she was trying to be less conscious of her body. She was at one of those turnings in a young life where no one can lead, no one can help, 
but where someone, for the sake of love, might follow. And I guess I'll just say what I like about that passage is that it's these very concrete details that are not generic at all and inform you of an entire life and a character. And then it closes with this very abstract, beautiful sentiment um, that makes me just want to keep reading. There's some intelligence on the on the page that is so provocative to me. Can you read something you wrote? This is the first part of the story I was describing about the naked lady. It's called Chapter 2. Tired of telling her own story at AA, Hill was trying to tell the one of her neighbor. It had been a peculiar week. So she comes to my house a few nights ago, Hill began, like around nine, bing bong, drunk as a skunk, as usual, right in the middle of the show my roommate and I are watching. I go to the door and there she is, 50-something, a totally naked lady standing under the porch light. Even at the time, it had seemed designed to charm her coy, drunken neighbor sporting a plaid pork pie hat and holding a toothbrush like a flag or flower or torch, choreographed, at least, and embarrassing to behold, Bergeron loves, grand dam in her own mind and all around the block. Look like somebody's not getting enough attention, Hill had murmured as she unlocked the door. The night was soggy, Houston autumn, frogs like squeeze boxes wheezing in and out. Her neighbor's nakedness seemed sad and enervated, breasts flat on her chest, a kind of melted look to the rest of her flesh, ankles thick on splayed feet. Southern belle in decline, a dismal after-picture, what had before looked like. Anyway, uh, that story was kind of complicated to write because I wanted to write it after it had happened, but the second part of the event of that week was that um, my neighbor ended up dying, so that the funny anecdote of her coming to the door naked and sort of being crazy was undercut almost immediately by her dying and me feeling bad about having laughed about the first incident. And it was really, I wanted to write about it, but I couldn't figure out how to write about it. And so when I turned it into a character who didn't know how to tell the story and thereby, you know, having different versions of it, she tells at AA meetings because they didn't know where else to have a character be charged with telling stories, then it became a story I could write. So that was a challenging piece to write, and I ended up being pretty happy with it in the end. Where do you write? Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I take notes. Um, I write in the margins of the books I'm reading, on the back flaps. I um, sit in my living room or in my bedroom. I have a laptop computer, and that's my main computer, and I'm very portable as a writer and, and always have been. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go to the gym or to the grocery store. I love to cook, and cooking is, you know, an almost opposite activity of writing for me in that I want I want to be able to control what comes out of it. I have a timeline. I've got people waiting at the end of it. Etc. It's just a hugely relieving, distracting, very different activity than, than writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a few close friends who read it. My husband, um, a friend in California, a friend in Colorado. Very lucky to have three or four people who who um, who know my you know who can help me and whose work I also read for, for the same. How do you deal with rejection? Oh, you know, like everybody, it makes me, um, (laughs) it's still upsetting. I don't know. But, you know, it makes me happier to be in in the throes of of a story I feel good about. Rejection, I don't think about it that much, really. And what is your favorite word? 
you know, when you first asked me this, it was easier for me to come up with words I hated. Um, but I did, I love the word literally. I love that it still, and I hope continues, to be one of those, you know, trustworthy words. If somebody uses it properly, you know, you, you are in um, the presence of uh, the real deal. I, I, I love that word. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Antonia Nelson, author of the short story collection, Funny Once. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.